last few weeks or the last month actually been looking at the final words of Jesus. We've said that somebody has time to prepare their closing remarks. You can learn a lot about what's important to them based on the last thing that they say. And we looked at Jesus' final words to his disciples in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. And you can summarize those. Here's my little summary. Basically something along the lines of empowered by the Holy Spirit, go to the places where I'm sending you uh, to be my witnesses, to be witnesses of who I am and what I've done for the purpose of making disciples of people everywhere. The key ideas are we're sent by the Father, we go in response to Him, we go empowered by the Spirit. Our responsibility is to make disciples, and the way we do that is by being witnesses to who Jesus is. Those are the main ideas that you see in His final words as we enter into Advent over the next four weeks. Again, these four weeks where we look forward to uh, the coming of Jesus, and there's kind of three layers of that. We look back to his first coming. We're all really good at that. That's what Christmas feels like to us. It's the the manger and all of those things. Uh, We look forward to his second coming. We're not as good um, at that. That's something that we lose sight of, but we don't want to do that. Jesus repeatedly said, hey, y'all need to be ready. You need to be alert aware of my returning, and we also want to recognize Jesus' present coming to us by His Spirit. That's what we talked about last week, that by the Holy Spirit, Jesus can come and be present to us right now uh, in our daily lives. And so as we do all of those things during Advent, we want to take these final words of Jesus and kind of roll those in um, as we look at Advent. Um, Our theme is Christmas on mission. Mission comes from the word send. Again, there's this idea that Jesus was sent Uh, to earth, and he had something to accomplish, and as his people, we are sent as well, and there's something for us to accomplish. So again, these next four weeks, we're going to continue on with this theme of mission, this idea of being sent, Jesus being sent, and then us being sent in response um, to his first coming. Oftentimes when we think about the nativity or Christmas, we think of something like this, it's kind of schmaltzy and sentimental, a dude playing the oboe over there, cute little baby angels staring down on Jesus with a halo, and there's there's some truth. Obviously, it was a miraculous birth, and there's some truth there, but when we think about this, and again, we're really good at looking back. This is actually culturally acceptable for us to look back in this way. When we look back like this, we can lose sight of what was actually going on during this first Christmas. This, I think, is actually a better picture of what was going on. Jesus was born a king, and his first coming that first Christmas was the opening shot in him reclaiming his territory, which is the earth. Revelation 11.15 says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our God and of Jesus Christ forever and ever. He's retaking what has always been his, which is this earth. If you read through, particularly in John, there's this picture of Satan as the prince of this world. And in John, I think it's 12, Jesus says his time is over because Jesus has now come. And that's what's going on that first Christmas. It's not just a cute story of a, of a baby who was born who doesn't cry. Or, or it's not that. That's, there's some truth there. He cried. There's some truth there. But the bigger picture is that this is God stepping into history as king saying, I'm taking them on. All of them. 
and I'm going to win. And that's what we want to look at today, this idea of Jesus as the king. This is Isaiah 9. You know this passage. For for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Listen to the royal language. The government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne forever and ever. Excuse me, or reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it, upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. You hear there's this, the expectation this one who is coming is of a king. Matthew 2, you know this story as well. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, magi or wise men from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where's the one who has been born king of the Jews? There's that idea. We saw a star in the east have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. When Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared, he sent them to Bethlehem. He said, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they'd heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Wise men, they were these uh, Babylonian astrologers. So they were pagan astrologers. And they would have rubbed shoulders with Jewish astrologers who had been in the land of Babylon and never came back after the exile, after the exiles were allowed to return. So hundreds of years they would have rubbed shoulders. They would have heard about this prophecy in Isaiah that the Jews are looking forward to a Messiah, this warrior king who would come and restore the fortunes of Israel. No one actually knows what the star of Bethlehem was. There's multiple theories. The best one is it's something like this. I'm not an astrologer or an astronomer, but this is kind of the idea. It's a rare occurrence where Jupiter which to the Jewish astrologers was the star of God, and Saturn, which was the star of the Messiah, were rising together in the east, which, was, which would signify birth in that constellation Pisces, which was the house of the Hebrews. So if you're, in a, if you're a Babylonian astrologer, when you see that configuration in the sky, what you see is a king is born in Israel. And so you get on your camel and you start walking, Because you want to see who this king is. And that's exactly what they did. This phenomenon occurred uh, three times in 7 and 6 BC. Which is when many people say Jesus was born. He wasn't born in zero. That would be very nice. But he wasn't actually born then. Uh, Sometime before is when he was born and this phenomenon occurred. So that's what many people say the star of Bethlehem was. And these astrologers would have seen that and would have responded Accordingly, because in their mind, a king had been born. You see Herod's response. He thought a king had been born. 
uh, if we read farther in Matthew, he, he, he kills, he slaughters every boy under two years of age because he doesn't know exactly who Jesus, he doesn't know who this Messiah, this king, the wise men came to worship. He doesn't know which kid it is, so he takes out anyone who could potentially be his competition. Isaiah says a king is going to come. These wise men say, hey, a king has been born. Herod recognizes a king has been born. This is Revelation 12. This is what I think was going on, kind of the inspiration for Herod. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth, said he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. There's this idea, (coughs) excuse me, cosmically, Satan gets it. This is a big deal, this birth. There's a, there's a rival. He, he saw the picture. This God is stepping onto the scene. And his days are numbered. Jesus was born a king. He wasn't just born, again, a, a swaddling baby. He wasn't just born to a virgin. He was born a king. And this was recognized by many people surrounding that event. And so the response for us very quickly becomes, well, what, what do we do with that? How do you respond to the birth of a king? And in Matthew 2, you see three possible responses. We can ignore. It's what the religious leaders did. It's pretty amazing to me. They've been waiting for hundreds of years for the Messiah to be born. These astrologers come from hundreds of miles away. They travel for months, and they say, hey, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? And they just say, down the road. They don't do anything to investigate it. Not one thing. I'm assuming in their mind what they're thinking is, If the Messiah was going to come, God wouldn't tell them. He would tell us. If anybody was going to see the sign, it would be us, not these pagan stargazers. And so they discount what happened. There's no evidence biblically that the religious leaders ever investigated Jesus' birth at all. They just ignored his claims to kingship. And we do the same thing. And we do it in the same way. We just don't acknowledge his, his role as king in our life. This is something passive. It's something that we don't do. And the way we kind of don't do that is we fail to bring every area of our life before him as king. As king, he has complete and total say, complete and total reign in every area of our life. But how, when was the last time you were, I think of myself, When was the last time I actually intentionally brought the different areas of my life before him and said, hey, you're the king. You've got 100% sovereignty in every one of these areas of my life plus the ones I can't think of. You have complete sovereignty in every one of those areas. So what do you want to do? You're the king of my finances. What do you want to do? You're the king of my job. So what do you want to do there? You're the king of my future. You're the king of my friendships. You're the king of my family. You're the king of my health. You're the... You're the king of my time. So what do you want to do in these areas? It's convicting for me when I think of when was the last time I actually brought those things to him as the king. I can't remember. I'm ignoring his rule in my life. I'm ignoring his reign 
in my life. I'm not giving him the opportunity. It's, it's the same thing the religious leaders did. They just didn't go and check it out. How often do I do the same thing? I just don't bring these things to him and give him a chance to rule and reign in those areas. My question to you is when was the last time you did that? When was the last time you just took the different slices of your life and just put them before him and said, hey, you're the king. Is there anything that you want to do different? Is there anything you want to see different? Is there anything that you want to change in these areas of my life? We can be like Herod. He sought to neutralize the claims of the king. He tried to kill him. We don't do that. The way we try to neutralize him is we rationalize and justify not obeying his radical commands. We figure out how those things don't really apply to us. I do this all the time. I do it up here sometimes. His words are hard. And so the way we try to neutralize his claims as his claim as king is to say, well, he didn't really mean that. He didn't really, that doesn't necessarily apply to me. Here's just my list of some of the things the king said that were difficult. You may think of others. Seek first the kingdom of God. It's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. First will be last. Become like children. All of these things. We're just off the top of my head some of the hard things that the king says. And if he's the king, then I have a responsibility to take him at his word and say, does this mean anything? What do you want me to do with this statement? It would be interesting during Advent if you did a couple of things. If you're prone to ignoring, if you just said, you know what, I'm going to intentionally give you the opportunity to be the king in every area of my life. I'm just going to bring them in front of you. That can be scary. Think of the one that's the most difficult for you to allow him to rule and reign in and and pick that one. You've got a month to bring it before him and say, even with fear and trembling and say, all right, you're the king of this area of my life. I'm going to let you have access. Pick the one of these that's the most difficult for you. Maybe it's a different command. Maybe it's a different word of his that's hard. Pick the one that's the hardest and say for Advent, you have four weeks I'm going to take you at your word. I'm going to wrestle with this at face value. I'm not going to try to justify, rationalize, explain why it doesn't apply to me. Easy to pick on the rich because none of us think we are. So we can just pick that one. It's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Median income in Cobb County is $65,000 a year. If you make more than that, then you could, you could say, we could say you're rich. Globally, we all are. But even within our local context, many of us are. So what would it look like for us to wrestle through, all right, God, if it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God and I'm rich, what does that mean for me? And really wrestle through that and don't, ju- don't try to work my way around the fact that it doesn't apply to me. If it's difficult for you to say in order to, to follow him, I've got to love him more than I love anyone, then wrestle with that. And wh- whoever those are that compete, your kids or your spouse, whoever is competition for him who do you tend to love more than him if he said listen you've got to pick me over them who's it going to be hard for you to do wrestle into that truth don't say he didn't really mean that assume that he really meant that and see where that takes you as a follower just in your heart wrestle into those things he says don't worry for some of us that's the most difficult thing he ever said don't worry What if he really meant, don't worry? What if he really meant you don't have to worry about your food or your clothing or your shelter? He said you don't have to, Matthew 6, he says you don't have to worry about any of that stuff. What if you didn't? 
And what if he was serious? What would that look like in your life for you to submit to him as the king who said, this is a command. I don't want you to worry about any of these practical matters. That's hard for us. He said, you'll do greater things than I would. And he's speaking to us, not just to the select few. Is that a hard thing for you to grab onto? That he, he expects that of you. Not just to bear fruit, but to do greater things than him. He raised people from the dead. So what does that leave on the table for us in terms of greater things? At least greater in number. Maybe same in kind, but the expectation is that the things he did, we will do as well. Is that a hard statement for you to grab onto? Do you disqualify yourself from that? Do you, do you justify or rationalize, explain why that doesn't apply to you because you don't know the Bible that well or because you still wrestle with sin or because you haven't been a Christian that long or for whatever reason? What if you grabbed onto that and said, this Advent, I'm going to take that as a command for me? That Jesus said, I would do those things. And as a promise that I would do those things. I'm going to try to live into that. Part of what it means for Jesus to be the king is that he's the boss. We don't, king is hard for us because we don't have one. We live in a democracy. We vote. We vote people in and we vote people out. And the ones who are in that we don't like, we just ignore. It's different for a king. You don't get a choice. He's there until he dies or somebody kills him. And, and, and as long as you live in his territory, then he has complete reign, complete ownership of every aspect of your life. He has say-so in anything that he wants to have say-so in. First Samuel 8, you can go back and read it. God says, here's what a king is going to do. He's gonna, this is how a king functions. He takes what he wants when he wants it for his own purposes. Thankfully, we serve a gracious king. But there's this idea that his rule is complete and total in our lives and we can't pick and choose. So take a hard saying, just pick one, and wrestle with it in your heart. What would it mean for me to take this at face value? I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at what it looks like for you once you wrestle all the way through it. It's better to do that than every time you read those things in the Bible to kind of skip over them and say they don't apply. That's neutralizing his claims to authority in your life. What we want to do is, is what the wise men did, which is seek him and worship him. So they see this event in the sky. They travel hundreds of dangerous miles for months to a foreign country to figure out who's at the other end. I, I don't know who does that. I don't. Who says, hey, I saw the planets and the stars, and so I decided I'm going to pack up and leave and go to some place that I don't know, risk my life on the journey, just to see who the fulfillment of this sign is. There's this element in them that seeks him out. And he continues to ask that of us. He says, you'll find me if you seek me with all your heart. There's this, he's not teasing us. He, he's always with us. That's what we talked about last week. His spirit lives within us. And so God is always dwelling with us. And yet he says, seek me. And seek me with intention and with consistency. He's not, again, he's not teasing us, but there's this, there's a hunger or a desire element that he's looking for within us where he says, if you want me, then come get me. You can find me, but you've got to look for me. And so there's this, again, there's this seeking element. What if for Advent, what would it look like for you to seek him in a more intentional way than you have been? What would it look like for you to be like one of the wise men and say, you know, I'm going to 
It doesn't matter if it's long and it doesn't matter if it's difficult and it doesn't matter if it's costly. I'm, I'm going to make sure that I get in front of him over the course of this Christmas season. If it means waking up earlier because things are crazy or staying up later or not eating lunch or whatever it looks like for me, I'm going to do that because that's what he's, I'm going to see. He's the king. And whatever it takes for me to get in his presence, it's easy for us to back burner Jesus. Because he's nice, we think. He's not, but we think he is. He's kind. He's not nice. He's gentle, but he's not nice. He's not demanding, for sure, outwardly. But he's the king, and he says, here are the terms. And when we say yes to him, we say yes to the terms. And, and, and some of, and at least one element of the terms is, I'm, I'm, I'm most important. I become priority, and whatever you have to do to be with me, then that's what you do. And that's hard. Again, it's easy for us to backburner him because he's not constantly screaming in our ears saying, fix me, fix me, or pay attention to me, pay attention to me, or watch me, or whatever. So what would it look like for you? to intentionally say the next four weeks I'm going to seek him in a way that I haven't, even if it means some level of sacrifice. And it very well may mean that for you. And then we worship him. Worship ultimately is just about bringing things to God. The wise men bring gold and incense and myrrh. We know God doesn't need any stuff. He says, hey, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. There's nothing that you can give me that I need. So it's not a matter of us meeting his needs, but there is this sense that says, I want to give you something that's reflective of your worth. When Mary anoints him with oil, she, it's, a, it's perfume that's worth a year's salary. And what she's saying is, this is what you're worth to me. You're worth my nest egg. So what would it look like this Advent for you to give him something reflective of his worth? It very well may be sacrificial. It might not be money. For many of us, our most precious resource is time, and to give him that is a huge sacrifice to carve out time to give to him, to say, you're worth this for me. You're worth my first hours in the morning, or you're worth my last ones at night, or again, you're worth me skipping a meal or missing a football game, or whatever it is that you do, to say, this is what you're worth. And I'm not saying that you spend that time just sitting in your recliner listening to praise music. That may be it. It may be some act of service in our community. It may be buying something for somebody. It may be going somewhere. I don't know. But there's this, again, this picture that says it's his birthday. And so what, are, what am I bringing to him? What am I giving to him that's reflective of his worth? That's accepting his rule as a king. It's saying I'm going to seek him out and then I'm going to worship him when I find him. I'm not going to ignore him and I'm not going to neutralize him. I'm going to seek him, and then I'm going to worship him. It's difficult for us, again, to think through this whole idea of Jesus as king. It can be hard. It can produce guilt because we think of all the ways that we're kind of not measuring up. And for some of us, it kicks us into performance mode where we say, all right, you threw a challenge out there, and I'm going to out-sacrifice everybody in the room to show how much I love God. And that's, that's not what we're trying to do here. Everything for us is by grace through faith, everything. And so the same thing is true when we connect with Jesus as a king. It's just, again, it's, it's a little harder for us to grab onto. When we think about Jesus as a savior, we talk about him rescuing us and we accept that. Or Jesus as the shepherd, he guides us and we 
follow him or Jesus as the rock, we talk about his faithfulness and we just trust in him or Jesus as the bridegroom, which is his love for us and how, and then we just love him in return. But when it comes to king, it's he rules and reigns over us and we submit to him and that can kind of make us feel like that. But the gospel is always good news. And so it's good news that Jesus is the king. It's not oppressive. It's not meant to to weigh you down. What does he say? My yoke is easy and my burden is light. He criticizes the religious leaders. He says, you tie up heavy loads on the backs of men and women and you don't lift one finger to help them. So recognizing Jesus as a king doesn't mean that he's, again, putting this heavy burden upon you, saying submit, 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 sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. It's good news for us that Jesus is the king. There's only two kingdoms. There's a kingdom of light and there's a kingdom of darkness. And none of us deserve to live in the kingdom of light. We've all rebelled against that king. We're all enslaved by this king who says, who, who, who his description is prowling around like a lion looking for someone to devour. He comes to steal and kill and destroy. That's the king that all of us are born enslaved to. Colossians 1 says God has rescued us from his dominion, from his kingdom, and transferred us into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of his son, into the kingdom of the one that he loves. That's good news. This kingdom that we don't deserve to live in by merit, we've been granted access to by faith. Jesus says, listen, I'm going to open the door and let you in to this realm. And he's the best king out there. That's why in 1 Samuel 8, God says, y'all don't want an earthly king, they're all terrible. Let me be your king, because I'm not. There's freedom for us in serving him. There's freedom for us in living under his rule and under his reign. It's just a different way of thinking, because we're all geared to say, I make the best decisions for me. I know what's best for me. I make the best decisions for me. It is so difficult for us to relinquish that control and say somebody else gets to decide. For some of you, the hardest statement is to become like a little child because you spent your whole life not becoming like a little child. You spent your whole life becoming an adult so you can do what you want because you don't want anybody telling you what to do. And maybe that's because you had sorry parents who told you bad. I don't know. But that's where we live. And what Jesus is saying is, under, in my kingdom, it can't function that way. You've got to be willing to submit to me. You've got to trust me enough to let me drive. That's what it means for him to be the king. Again, it's a, it's a different way of looking at authority. Because when we think of authority, we think that means somebody else can drive us into terrible situations that are bad for us. Somebody can make decisions for us and then we're responsible for their boneheaded decisions and X, Y, and Z. But Jesus, as the king, as your king, as my king, he's not like that. All of the things that are true of him are true of him as king. Gracious, kind, compassionate, slow to anger, quick to love. All good, all-knowing, all-powerful. Just, righteous, true, steady. All of those things are true of him as the king. And that's the king who we submit to. It's not an ogre. It's not a tyrant. And this is the kingdom that you get to be a part of. This is Revelation 21. 
as opposed to this kingdom that's run by one who's looking to devour, who's looking to steal, who's looking to kill, who's looking to destroy. This is John's vision. He says, I see a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away and there's no longer any sea. I see the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all of this, and I will be his God, (coughs) and he will be my son. That's the invitation. That's the king that you get to serve, and that's the kingdom that we get to be a part of. It's all grace, and we access it by faith. It's not, this isn't a heavy load. This isn't a, let's see, it's not a, not trying to kick in your martyr complex to see who can sacrifice the most and who can suffer the most to show how much God is worth to them. It's an invitation to say, hey, this baby who was born was born as a king, and he's come to reclaim. Let's pray. So I, I'm not a crier. I'm emotionally retarded. If I cry, almost always, and I'm not trying to manipulate you. I feel like it's the Lord because it's not, I'm not compassionate. It's not in me. And so again, without any sense of manipulation, I just want to say my since this morning some of what you need to hear is that he's come to reclaim you in the desired response it's just, it's take me. Take me as I am. If you'll offer yourself to him this morning, broken, sinful, wrecked, confused, angry, mad, whatever it is, the promise of Christmas to you, it's that picture. He's come as a warrior king. To reclaim what is his own. And that includes you. And my encouragement to you. 
is to not resist this morning. Don't ignore this invitation. And don't neutralize these words and try to rationalize away why they don't apply to you. Because they do. Lord, my prayer for whoever this is meant for, I just pray that you would speak to their hearts and that they would respond in these moments to your invitation to be their king. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to close with ministry. We'll have ministry teams here in the corners. We'd love to pray with you about anything that you have going on. If this idea of being reclaimed, if that's something that's stirring in your heart, please let us pray for you. Also, during worship, I had an, uh, kind of a sense that maybe there's one or two of you, one I was thinking for sure, who's really wrestling with the idea of going. We've been talking about that for a month. You're not really sure what you want to do or how to obey that command. And I want to encourage you to come and grab Michael and Claire Mosley. Michael's the one who stood up earlier and said he finished his degree. They've got 15 years of experience going. And so I want to encourage you during this ministry time just to come and just say, hey, I think that's me and I don't really know what to do. And they can help you walk through that. So you guys can stand. We'll have ministry teams here up in the corners. And Bo will dismiss us after this song.